So this is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday in the church year. Next week, we start all over again with the first Sunday in Advent. The church sets aside one Sunday every year to celebrate the reign of Christ over God's kingdom. And the lectionary gives us, as an epistle lesson this morning, this passage from Revelation chapter 1. You know, Revelation is this odd book of dreams and visions and threats at the end of the Bible, but really what it is is a letter from a pastor to the congregations he's in charge of. So listen to these words of promise. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom of priests, to God the Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. And notice, please, that our scripture lesson this morning is carved into our communion altar. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Noemi Gonzalez was a star in the design department at California State University in Long Beach. She was a first-generation Mexican-American, a junior. Her mother is a hairdresser. And this summer, Noemi thought she won the lottery when she found out that she would get to spend her summer abroad studying design in Paris. Where would you study design but in Paris? And she was having such a great time crisscrossing Paris from the Eiffel Tower to Notre Dame day and night. She was exhausting herself. She was studying a 3D modeling computer program in French, of course, which was the hardest thing she'd ever done and the best. And so a week ago, Friday night, she was partying with friends at a popular bistro on the Rue de Charon with her California state friend, Niren, when the terrorists started shooting randomly. And Niren scrambled to safety, but Noemi was killed. So far as we know, she's the only American to die in those attacks. The next day, Niren wrote, I lost one of my good friends, and I'm still trying to process this all, but it's just too much to take. Thank you, Noemi, little one, for being my friend. I hope heaven has an endless supply of baby pugs for you. Life can be so cruel and so random and so inscrutable that sometimes that poem from James Russell Lowell will leap unbidden to your mind. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. And we want to know who's in charge of this, who's running this show. And of course, that was the question these seven baby churches in Asia Minor were asking their pastor around the turn of the first century A.D., and in response, their pastor, a wild man who would later 
become known as St. John the Divine or St. John the Theologian. Wrote a letter which later became the oddest and last book in the Bible. So here's the background to this lesson this morning. You know the best thing and sometimes the worst thing about Christianity and its mother faith, Judaism, is its uncompromising monotheism. It's just radical, extreme monotheism. Judaism and Christianity don't leave any room for subordinate or parallel loyalties. Our God is so big that there's no room for anything else in that universe. And this all goes back to the Ten Commandments, right? The first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall have no other gods before me. There's no room in Judaism or Christianity for demigods or JV divinities or assistant deities. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, the Jews said over and over and over again like a broken record or like a CD player with a stuck laser beam. And later the Christian church would transpose this ancient song into a new key when it would say over and over again, Jesus Christ is Lord of all and everything and no one else. And so around the turn of the century, first century A.D., a capable but ruthless autocrat named Domitian comes to the throne in Rome and decides that he's going to unify his disparate, multi-hued, polyglot residents of his empire, this sprawling, almost ungovernable empire, by declaring himself God of the whole thing. The emperor is God. That's Domitian's solution to his problem. And you can see how this will become a problem for Jews and Christians who insist on one lone, solitary, omnipotent deity. You know, this is, this is not a, emperor worship is not a problem for the average Roman citizen. Well, it probably insults her intelligence, right? She probably says, are you serious? Really? You want me to kneel to this bozo? He makes mistakes. They all do. He's going to die. They all do. You want me to kneel to this guy? But then after you've said that to yourself, you cross your fingers behind your back and you take a knee because you want to go along and get along. This is no problem for her. She already has a closet full of curious idols and a stadium full of bickering gods like Jupiter and Neptune and Mars and Mercury and Venus. What's one more? Sure, I'll add Domitian to my God collection. No big deal. But Christians and Jews with their uncompromising monotheism just could not and would not take that knee. And they were getting killed for it. And so John wants to tell them what's really going on. Grace to you and peace, he says, from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits that are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I am, says God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, God the Almighty. Jesus Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Can you hear how incendiary this is with the mission declaring himself God on the throne in Rome? Can you hear how revolutionary this would be? Among this multiplicity of little kings, there is a big king above them all. With all these midget royals, there is a genuine royal who rules them all. Jesus Christ the righteous. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says God in John's curious letter. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come. In other words, way back when, at the beginning of time, before there was anything, there was not nothing. There was God. 
and way far into the future when nothing will any longer exist. Not the earth, not people, not anything. There will not be nothing. There will still be God. God is our beginning and our end, our Alpha and Omega, our origin and our destiny, says St. John. And this whole tragicomic human opera that spins out beneath the burning stars unfolds only in the plenitude of God's beautiful being. Now, we're not nearly so besieged as those Christians John wrote to so long ago, but sometimes it seems as if the dark side is gaining on us, doesn't it? In Beirut, in Paris, in Bamako. And so in this scripture, we want to hear on this special day of the church calendar, this is what we need to hear on Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year. In some ways, the apex and zenith of the church year. And so partly for this Sunday, I love the waning days of November. I love the fact that on this Sunday, the church calls me to pay homage to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And that four days later, my president will ask me to give thanks for all I've been given. Thanks to the Alpha and the Omega, the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so this is my favorite time of year. I'm too busy at Christmas. So I love November's leaden skies and its Siberian winds. And I love the carpet of gold it lays across the forest floor. A few days ago, I went to western Michigan to visit my father. And of course, I always take Dudley the Golden Retriever because Dudley is a movie star at my father's nursing home. And we had a good visit. And after our visit, I took the dog for a walk in a sprawling park along the shores of Lake Michigan, carpeted, densely forested with maples and oaks. And there was this golden carpet on the floor of this forest. And I was walking along, not paying too much attention, writing my next sermon in my head, I guess. And then I look up and I can't find my dog. You know, he never strays far from my side. He's always right there. And I look up, I can't find him. And the reason I can't find him is that everywhere I looked, the forest floor was carpeted with fallen leaves, the same golden hue as his flaxen fur. And finally, I spotted him 20 feet away over here by his mahogany eyes and his coal black nose. November's naked branches had opened up a sprawling blonde vista that had been hidden from sight just weeks before. In heaven, they say, the streets are paved with gold, and here too, if we will only look. And so this time of year, I try to practice an attitude of gratitude for the unmerited grace that has somehow come my way. And the larger trick, of course, is to turn that seasonal sentiment into a never-ceasing perspective that lasts all year long. Earlier this year, David Brooks had a nice column in the Times about gratitude. And Mr. Brooks says, you know, we're all grateful some of the time. For instance, when somebody saves you from a mistake or walks your dog after you've sprained your ankle. But then Mr. Brooks goes on to talk about the dispositionally grateful. These are people who are grateful by nature, from birth, all the time. They can't help themselves. 
dispositionally grateful. And he says that the dispositionally grateful are a little bit countercultural in our land and in our time because we live in what Mr. Brooks calls a capitalist meritocracy. In a capitalist meritocracy, we all learn self-sufficiency. This is a good thing. We work hard. We earn what we make. We earn what we're given in a capitalist meritocracy. But, you know, after a lifetime of self-sufficiency, you sort of fool yourself into thinking you don't need the people around you. You know Bart Simpson's prayer at the table? Dear God, we bought all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. That's a capitalist meritocracy. The dispositionally grateful, on the other hand, always feel as if they're deeply indebted to the rest of the world. All their ink is red. They're hopelessly in debt. And if they live to be a hundred, they will never be able to pay it back. The families who love them, the schools that educated them, the companies who pay them, the congregations they laugh with and cry with, the friends who tell them that they are cherished and cherished and cherished. It's all too much. How will I pay this back? If I live to be 100, I can't pay this back. These people are pleasant to be around. Yes? One last thing and then I'll quit. Last fall, there was an article in The New Yorker I'm always a year behind in my reading of The New Yorker. I read 50 issues during August, so that's what I did this year. Great issue in The New Yorker last fall about Billy Joel. And the title of the article was 33 Hit Wonder. That's how many top 40 hits Billy Joel has had in his career, more than twice as much as Fleetwood Mac, The Eagles, and Bruce Springsteen. So last year, Billy Joel played a concert at Madison Square Garden 12 times, once a month. 12 concerts at Madison Square Garden, 12 sellouts. And so for a long time, they sold the first two rows of seats right in front of the stage at huge premium prices, thousands of dollars a piece. And so you might guess who gets to sit in those front two seats next to the stage, right? They're hedge fund barons from Greenwich and tycoons from Long Island and celebrities from L.A., and NBA stars from Miami, people who can afford to pay $5,000 for a concert ticket, people who come with entourages and black escalades with tinted windows. And all these big, important people, says Billy, would be sitting there in the front row with their arms crossed, daring him to entertain them. Entertain me, piano man, they would say, figuratively, if not literally. And I know just how Billy Joel feels. <laughs> there are always a few guys in the congregation, and there are always guys who are sitting there with their arms crossed, sometimes figuratively, but sometimes literally, daring me to entertain them. It's as if they're saying, I am too smart to pray and too cool to sing the hymns and too bored to listen to this bozo sermon. I know just how Billy Joel feels. Anyway, Billy Joel got tired of playing his music to these people who have seen everything and take everything for granted. And he can see their listless faces up close and personal and in technicolor. So he quit selling these tickets at premium prices, took them off the market. And now you know what he does? 
he gives those premium tickets to his crew. And five minutes before the concert starts, the crew goes up into the nosebleed seats at the garden. This is way, this is in the roof, way above the jumbotron. And they hand out these tickets at random to people who thought they would be watching this concert through binoculars. And they escort these folks down to the first two seats, 48 inches from the stage, where they can high-five Billy Joel and touch the toe of the Chuck Taylors on the lead guitarist's foot. And they scream and yell, and Billy Joel gets the adoration he most certainly deserves, and they think they have gone to rock concert paradise. I paid for the cheap seats, and here I am with Billy Joel. So, you have a front seat to the pageant of creation, the music of the spheres, the colorful drama of human history. There is nourishment for your metabolism, shelter for your little ones, raiment for your person, challenge for your intellect, enrichment for your spirit, opportunity for your ambition, and space for your flourishing. Did you earn it? Did you pay for it? Or did you gain that seat by the largesse of your host, the grace of God, the unmerited favor of the one who is and who was and who is to come? So all praise swell and all glory accrue to the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, our origin and our destiny. Amen.